I want to look at today, I want to just kind of jump around a bit and look at some of the after effects, the aftermath of the resurrection. And I want to try to connect the resurrection of Jesus Christ in its historical and theological sense. I want to try to connect that back to you and I. You know that word, right? There's been, a, there's been an earthquake and now we have the aftermath. aftermath. There's been something that that has happened that's cataclysmic and on the heels of that there is what's called the aftermath or the after effects and so I want to look at today I want to just kind of jump around a bit and look at some of the after effects the aftermath of the resurrection and I want to try to connect the resurrection of Jesus Christ in its historical and theological sense I want to try to connect that back to you and I where we live every day right now as the people of God doing business in this world in our contemporary context and so we just read from um, uh, Acts, uh, and uh, we, we um, read about um, Peter and John having been um, um, challenged by uh, the authorities on the heels of them having been used by God to, uh, to effect miracles. And, and, and all of this is because of the resurrection. Some, some uh, scholars would say and, and maintain, and I would kind of agree that Pentecost, the second chapter of Acts, the first part, is the official birth date of the church because the Holy Spirit is sent and falls upon God's people and, and, uh, and out of that. But I, I think that everything that you see going forward from the end of the Gospels and from the first chapter of Acts forward, all of that is the aftermath and the effects of the, of the resurrection. It, the re- everything hinges on the resurrection. And by the way, never forget that with regard to your life and with regard to your life in Christ. It's all about the resurrection. And uh, so, you know, what happens is that uh, after this, 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 after their, um, they're having been arrested, they, they, they get sprung, right? They get busted out of jail, and they pray this prayer. The fact that dead folks are supposed to stay dead. And, and, the, and how amazing and unexpected and exciting and surprising and, yay, shocking the resurrection was. But the other thing is that people that are, that are, that are suppressed are supposed to stay, stay suppressed when they're threatened. But unexpectedly, we see that the, the disciples, they, 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 they respond with, with faith and courage because they have seen something. They have experienced something that is life-changing. Now, and, and as we go forward, we begin by understanding that based upon what we, what we celebrated last week, we believe in, we believe as, 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 as Christians, as people of the Bible, we believe in the, what, what the term is the historicity of, of the resurrection. We believe that the resurrection is the pivotal event in, in Christian history where Jesus Christ rose from the grave and secured our salvation. He, he forever defeated the enemy of death, hell, and the grave, the enemies of death, hell, and the grave, and he, he conquered them on our behalf and was the first fruits of all of us who will ultimately be raised. And for us, it's the promise that life doesn't end when we close our eyes and when they call the coroner or, or take you to Harrison Ross or wherever they take you. That is not the end, but actually for us, it is only the transition into a new and amazing beginning. We believe that. And we believe that because that's what, we, what Jesus has prefigured for us. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, at length. And if you get a chance, you read that chapter. He talks about the fact that there's some people around in his day. And they're saying, oh, Jesus didn't, wasn't really raised from the dead. But he said, understand this. He, he recounts some of the historical facts who had seen him. He talked about there were 500. All the, all the apostles had seen him. 500 or so people at one time. He had, he had appeared here and there and went around. And he said, listen, you got to understand this. If Christ is not raised, you're still in your sins. If Christ is not raised, we are of all people to be pitied. We're miserable because the thing that makes all the difference with regard to our eternal 
future is the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. If you believe that, just say amen so I know you're still alive. Because I know the chairs are more comfortable than they used to be. And I don't want you to go to sleep on this morning. So Paul affirms, he says, we, you know, we know that Christ was raised from the dead. So there's a few things that come out in 1 Corinthians 15. Then therefore we know that we too shall be raised. We know that our preaching is not meaningless. We're not preaching dead words, but we're preaching life and we're preaching a, few, a hope and a future to people based upon Christ's resurrection. Because of the resurrection, we know that our faith is not in vain. I don't go to church just because I'm a cultural Christian. I don't participate with the body of Christ just because I, I was raised in the church because my mama was a Christian and my daddy was a Christian. I do it because I serve a risen Savior who I believe is in the world today and who lives in me. And I believe in the hope of the gospel that's out for us. So, I, you know, because of the resurrection, our faith is not in vain. Because of the resurrection, we, we know that what we've learned about God, what the Word has declared about Him can be trusted. Jesus verifies and, and authenticates that through raising from the, rising from the dead. We know that those who have, who have died are alive in Christ, and that is encouraging for us. You know, I think about my parents that, that, that you know, my, about what, 20 years ago in, in August, I lost my mom and dad, and they were advanced. And you, a little, little factoid here. Today is April 12th, right? Today, if my dad were alive, he would be 105 years old. And so some of you are saying, dang, Charles, how old does that make you? <laughs> and I was, I, was born, I, was a, I was on the late freight, so I, I'm just glad I'm here, okay? Because <laughs> uh, they had my brother, and then it was some years elapsed. It's like, okay, and then I popped up, hey, there's Charles, you know? But, but I, know, I know what that's like to have lost loved ones have lost my parents and and my wife lost her mom last may or dad three years prior to that but the resurrection reminds us of this fact that hey listen because of the fact that jesus died that that they are alive in christ and we will see them again do you believe that and it's the resurrection that secures that hope and that future for us we know that suffering and sorrow in this life because of jesus resurrection are not the end they're not the last word aren't you glad about that Oh, because weeping may endure for a night, but joy really does come in the morning because you understand that Christ defeated the grave. We know that there is a solid foundation to our faith because of the resurrection. We do know that there is a joyous reason for us to come together as God's people and worship and celebrate and shout and make noise and clap on the slow songs. I kind of noticed that before, but today I really, I said, you guys are really, really, really physical. And, that, and that's wonderful because worship is supposed to be a whole body, whole life experience. That's why you're supposed to dance and sing and shout and move around. And, and, and it doesn't matter how good you sing. Aren't you glad about that? That's why they let me put a mic in front of my face, you know. It, it, does, it doesn't matter because it's all about the fact that, wow, Jesus is alive. And so we can celebrate that. You know, that you can clap on the slow songs and you can do your little two-step. Or you can, you know, you can, you can do like my brother Eugene, you can cabbage patch over in the corner, it doesn't matter. You can, you know, you can do the holy dance or whatever dance. But, 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 but we rejoice with our whole selves and with our, the entirety of our lives because of the reality. This, we, we believe it's real. It's not just, it's not just making noise and, and moving around to do it, but because we believe there's something substantive to what we're celebrating. And we know that because Jesus rose from the grave that we are not wretched, which wretched means miserable. Are you miserable? You don't have to be miserable because Jesus' resurrection says, well, but in the sense of our future and our destiny, we're not miserable, we're not wretched, we're not pitiable, but we have, you and I both, we got the best news in the world, in the universe to share 
that, that, that Jesus is alive, and we know that we are safe in his arms, our destiny is secure, and we know that no matter who we are or what we are, God has welcomed us into his story, and this hope, this love, this forgiveness, this new life, this resurrection, this joy, we're all a part of that, and we share that. But what we get today, what I want to look, so all, all that, I, I believe all that with every ounce of my being. I, I base, I, I'm here today. I do this, what I do. I, I, I play keyboards and lead worship and, and participate in, 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 in ministry, and I, and I pastor, and I deal with all of the, I, I get to, to experience all of the joys as well as the heartaches and disappointments of any level of leadership that any of us, if anytime you're called to do something for God, it's going to be exhilarating. It could be a, a, a world of fun and excitement. And it could be also very challenging because we, you know that there's somebody that, 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 that tries to fight us when we're trying to do God's well, but the reason I do that is because I believe in the resurrection. I believe what, what Paul has affirmed in, in 1 Corinthians 15. But what I want to, to want to look at today is from the gospel is the fact that we don't want the impact, we don't want the magnitude of the resurrection to be lost on us. We don't want to miss the full deal, if you will, of what it's about. Because what we talked about last week, John had demonstrated how powerfully the resurrection affected, even in the midst of the drama of its occurrence. And there in John 20, and the other, the synoptic gospels bring this out as well. It, it, was, it was a momentous and, and challenging and, sometimes, and perplexing and puzzling. And, and I, I use the word crazy because you know what I mean when I say that. You know, because it doesn't, you know, some things are just like crazy, could be crazy good or crazy bad or crazy like just, wow, my mind is blown. It's that kind of thing. The resurrection doesn't, I don't think that God intends that we be indifferent. You either totally disavow it and, and deny it and, 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 and blow it off, or you believe it and embrace the wonder and the blessing that comes from it. But it, it's got to make a difference in your life. It, it affected and surprised and shocked, but ultimately blessed everyone involved in it and everyone going forward. And here's the question. Will we allow the resurrection to impact us in every corner of our existence? Will we allow that to happen. And then the text that we just read this morning, there are three things that I want to just kind of break out from it, but we see several things, and this is down the road a bit from the resurrection, right? Because, you know, and you go to, in Luke's account in Acts, Acts chapter 1, um, Jesus, uh, the ascension takes place, you know, and he talks about, you know, uh, and, and of course they ask that fateful question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Because we're really all about getting our, our pride back and and getting uh, our political dominance back and getting the Romans out of our backyard and and getting control over our own lives again. And Jesus says, this is what it's not for y'all to know the times of seasons, but what you do is you go to Jerusalem and you wait until I send the Holy Spirit because that's going to make all the difference in the world because that's what I'm doing post-resurrection, right? And so on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls and, and, and everybody breaks out and speaking languages they haven't learned supernaturally by the power of the Holy Spirit and, and everybody and, and 3,000 men are, 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 are converted that first day. And Peter, Peter, who's been kind of shaky in his commitment and, and unst- unsteady in his perception and through the Gospels, it's like Peter's always kind of like one step behind Jesus, right? Jesus, you know, Jesus says, the Son of Man must die. And, Jesus, and Peter says, ain't no way we're going to let that happen. It's like, say, get behind me, Satan. That's cold-blooded when, some, when, when if Jesus you know, speaks to Satan, and you, but he's talking to you. Don't try that with your husband or your wife. You, 
You see what I'm saying? But, but, but he, all of a sudden, Peter, and, and the heels of the resurrection and under the power of the Spirit, breaks out and eloquently ties together all the message of, of the Hebrew Scriptures and, and brings it all into perspective with the resurrection, with the life and death and, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And people start getting saved, man. I mean, the church just burst out. And, and so th- then, you know, of course, the same people, and we talked about it last week, the fact that one of the tensions underlying the resurrection is that the disciples are sneaking around there. They, they're, they're afraid that what has just happened to Jesus could very well happen to them at any moment. And so I'm, we, we suspected that maybe they were kind of staying in Jerusalem, staying under the cover of the crowd and kind of laying low because they didn't know what was going to take place next. And, and so um, they, you know, but the church breaks out. And then, of course, the, the, the authorities, the powers that be are upset. They come back and they say, Lord, I mean, first of all, they come back and, and once again, they tie it to the word and quote from the Psalms. Why did the, why did the heathens rage? Why did the nations rage? And why did the people imagine a vain thing? That's coming out the Psalms. It's, it's prophetic looking forward to Jesus. Like why? And basically he's asking this existential question. What is wrong with these folk? <laughs> why is, why is, why are the Jewish authorities, the Jewish leaders, why are the Roman authorities, why are, why are they fighting against what God is doing? That's an existential, that's a, that's a, that's a kind of a rhetorical question. They know why. And then they, then, then they pray. And they ask for some stuff. I know when you, get, when you feel persecuted and harassed and harangued and messed with, anyone all felt that way lately? That you ask for relief you ask God to take you out that situation. God, get me a new job. Don't fix the old one. Get me a new one. But they, they ask, they, there's three things in their, in their, in their uh, number one, there's a, que- a quest for boldness in their prayer. Because in verse 29 it says, now, Lord, consider their threats and shut them down and protect us. That's not what they say. You have the text that's in your reading. If you don't have your Bibles, I hope you do have some kind of Bible, even if it's digital. But in verse 20, it says, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. It's amazing because in the aftermath of the resurrection, the disciples, when pressed and persecuted for preaching the message of the resurrection, for preaching about the risen Jesus, they don't ask for relief. They ask for boldness. They said, take us deeper. They said, we don't want, don't shut us down. Don't quiet us. Turn us up. Pump up the volume. Lord, give us boldness to not do less, to not be intimidated, but to do more. Consider their threats. And the Lord does consider the threats of the enemy against your life and against his people. And the Lord's response is not necessarily to quiet the threat or to take it away in the moment, but oftentimes to merely give us the boldness to keep on doing what God has called us to do and to keep on being the people of God in the midst of the threats and the persecution and the turmoil all around us to keep on keeping on they had a quest for boldness they said, lord keep give us boldness don't uh, don't allow us to re- retreat or to, to to shrink back but to to step up and to, to move out and then there's a hunger for healing not for their own healing like the uh, I don't use that effect much I save that for special days when Daryl's going to be here I use the flames <laughs> Yeah, like this, see? 
That's, 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 that's Apple keynote there, y'all. Now, but the hunger for healing. Look, look at verse 30. Stretch out your hand. Not to preserve us. Though they can count on God's. But this is what we want you to do, God. In the midst of this situation, the aftermath of the resurrection, what we understand your will to be and what we understand you want to do, Jesus, is to affect healing in the lives of people in the world around us. So, Lord, our prayer and our hunger is that you would stretch out your hand. And it's a, it's a picture. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Because, you know, there are times when Jesus touched people and healed them, and Jesus placed his hands on people. And sometimes, you know, when we pray for the sick, we place our hands on them. Can you imagine this idea of God stretching out his hand in the world? And that's what he wants to do, by the way. I hope you know that. Don't look at people around you and 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 that you don't agree with and plot their demise and write them off, but realize that God wants to affect through your life and through my life and through the life of the body of Christ and the people of God healing in the world around us. They had a hunger to see God's healing power displayed in the lives of people around them. Stretch out your hand to heal, verse 30, and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They wanted to see healing. That healing doesn't just take place just in the sense of physical healing. We believe that God is able to do that if he wants to. Doesn't always do it. But I'll tell you what, what about some of the greater and some of the more pervasive dimensions of healing in the world around us? Because there are a whole lot of folks that are well in body and sick in their spirit, sick in their soul. There are people who are, who are healthy and doing quite all right. Their numbers are looking all right when they go to get their, their yearly physical. Everything is where it's supposed to be. But their marriage is in trouble. Their relationship with their children is fractured. Their internal world is in chaos within their own emotions, within their own mind, within their own heart, within their own, own soul. There is turmoil and all kinds of disorder. They need the healing touch of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so these folks in the, in the aftermath of the resurrection, they say, we understand what God is about. So, Lord, first of all, crank it up, give us boldness, and, and stretch out your hand. We want to see you do what we know you desire to do. We're just talking about, man, what's the Lord's will? We pray the Lord's prayer, Lord, let your, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'll tell you, I know there's some things I know that are God's will. I don't know if... It, if, if a given physical healing in a certain situation is God's will in that moment. But I know that I, I believe that it is God's will that you walk and live in the peace of God. P-E-A-C-E. I believe that you, we should have that internal peace and that, and, and that tranquility that comes from knowing that your life is right with God. I believe that we should be healed from the, from the scourge of sin and the brokenness that it brings. I believe that God can heal and desires to heal any broken relationship that we will put on the altar before him. I believe that God wants to heal relationships between parents and their children, sons and their fathers and daughters and their mothers. I believe that God wants to heal the, 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 the scourge of racism in our society that just keeps rearing its ugly head again and again and again because it's never been healed because when it's not because if you want to get healed, one of the things you've got to do is you've got to call that thing what it is. When you go to the doctor, you've got to get a diagnosis. And a diagnosis, that's a very important word because your doctor doesn't just treat you like, well, he think, he's, got the, he's got the flu, but we're not going to talk about that. 
we're going to look at something else. And we just, well, you know, you got to, well, I know, don't worry about it. You, you know, when I was a kid, we had this family doctor. It was, it was wonderful because we had, we, 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 you know, it was, it was uh, over on the east side and the Elks building on Santa Barbara and, and Central. And my dad had his, his office in there and our doctor was in there. He was a Jamaican guy from Meharry Medical College, Dr. A.A. A. Williams. But Dr. Williams, man, he would never tell you what was wrong with you. He would just do stuff. Because that's what he did with my dad. And when I, when I was a kid, when I used to walk, go in there, and he would never say nothing. He would just start doing stuff. And he would start, like, sticking swabs down your throat and making you gag and stuff. But there's something that happens. One of the things that healing takes place when we get the proper diagnosis. And the thing about racism and bigotry and hatred and all these things in our world, in this society, in this culture, and in every culture and society in the world, because of the brokenness of sin, you have to call sin, sin. You got to call it what it is. In your life, there are some things that need to be healed, and they will be healed when you allow the Spirit of God and the Word of God to call you out and to name that and to designate it for what it is. If it's selfishness, you got to call it that. You got to diagnose it as that and not as something else, not as that I'm a victim. If it's rebellion, you got it needs to be diagnosed and not, well, you know, I just didn't get a fair shot, so I'm just I just gotta be me. You know, you gotta get down to the real diagnosis, and there's something about about the Holy Spirit. He will do that in your life for you on your behalf. If you'll listen to him and if you'll develop a relationship, if you'll enter into that relationship with God, he'll do that in your life. But we need to have this same hunger for healing to see God. Effect healing in every area of life in the world around us. And then thirdly, and this is big in the, in the passage. In the aftermath of the, of the resurrection, they are passionate about infectious community. Now, I'm using a lot of medical terminology today. And, you know, gossip and division are infectious. Right? You know... Some of you might know how to destroy a, a, a network, a, a community of people, because you did that maybe in your family. You know how to go to one person and start something that isn't true and, and let it walk, roll around until everything's in chaos, and you stand back and say, what? What happened? None of y'all don't know anything about that, right? What happened? Yeah, that's infectious. Sin is infectious. But this community that breaks out here, in verse 32, look, look what it says. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. That's the way the church started out, and that's the way the church, where the church is supposed to live. Now, there's, in my quest to understand the New Testament, I read somebody wrote something about this, and, and it echoed what I had thought. Because see, I grew up, in the, I grew up in, in the Pentecostal movement, and one of the rallying cries, one of the war cries of classical Pentecostalism out of the early 20th century Azusa Street movement and, and that kind of thing, which also kind of touches on some of the other movements, was we got to get back to Pentecost. We got to get back to the early church. Realistically speaking, we have a hard time understanding what exactly, the, because the early church was, was multifaceted. There were different forms of church order in different communities, and the early church had problems like the church today does. They weren't perfect. It wasn't just because they spoke in tongues 
or laid hands on the sick and they recovered. And, but it was always this, you know, because there's a, we, don't, we don't understand the culture of the New Testament, which is a, 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 a Hellenistic environment as opposed to the, the Hebrew environment of the Old Testament. Two different cultures, and both of them are foreign to us culture of the New Testament is uh, an Eastern or an Oriental, uh, is the old word, uh, culture. Because you talk about, I'm, be, watch out for that Eastern religion. Well, guess what? Christianity ain't a Western religion. It became a Western religion and the foundation for much of Western civilization. But it's a different world. But in this one, if you want to get back to Pentecost, you want to get back to the early church, you want to get back to the roots. The one thing that we see here is this idea of community. And this is the, see some of the other stuff, it's easy to try to act like we think they acted. Probably in their services, they probably didn't have anybody in charge, they probably made a lot of noise, and they were there for a long time, and then they ate and went home. We don't know, but but the one thing that we see that is that we see over and over again, when it worked right and when it worked wrong, we see Paul deal with that in First Corinthians and other places. Because then sometimes, sometimes this broke down. But this is the roots. This is where it starts. All the believers, it says in verse thirty-two, were one in heart and mind. That's the aftermath of the resurrection. Now that's community, but the community becomes infectious because it grows, because no, and it spreads, and it has these ethical implications because there's no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. Now, some of you getting, don't start, the new seats are a little harder to squirm in because they're a little softer, but you can kind of, because it's like this gets, this really flies in the face of, of our, our, our Western individualism and the way we think and the way we live. And don't worry, I'm not here today to tell you, okay, on the way out, drop off your checkbooks and your credit cards and all your stuff. But the point is that Understand that there was something unique and something special and some things to be, to be looked at and maybe to be desired with regard to the quality of community that they experienced. And it says to us at least this, that being the church is more than just showing up at a place on Sunday morning. That being the church is more than just a good sermon or more than just singing some songs. It's not just finding the, the organization that... Uh, that most suits your needs or the place that is most pleasing to you, but it's about being in a situation where you can be vitally connected with people in a caring and real relationship of accountability, kind of like family. And the reason why we sometimes don't do church as well as we need to is because we don't do family as well as we need to because we're broken because of sinfulness that has been passed on through our family lineage from generation to generation yes because for generations back and as people that that have come the the way of oppression the fact that our families were were fractured and broken and separated and our family culture was 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 discouraged and, and 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 we went through all of that abuse. We don't know how to do it, and it's hard. But the Spirit of God and the power of the resurrection wants to restore to us the ability to live in family and to live in community. And here what happens in this environment is that no one, they, 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 they become really communal. They shared everything they had. And then out of that, in verse 33, with great power, the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. There the re- that message just goes on. They, the resurrection... Pro- 
propels them forward. The ascension, the Holy Spirit falls, the church is born, the, the resurrection sends them out preaching that message of this is what the Old Testament was all about. It's about the, about the Son of God. It's about Jesus, the Messiah who God sent, who you killed. Yes, y'all killed him, but God raised him from the dead. And they go forward with that message. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. That's the ideal. That's the ideal. Mighty quiet in the house on this morning. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them. Brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Let's be real. That's not an easy ideal to embrace in our context. But can we explore the spirit of that idea? You understand what I'm saying? No, it's not that God is calling us to enter into a radical or drastic communal existence. Some of you said, I worked too hard to get this house. <laughs> and some of you have been at churches where the preacher told you to sell your house so we could do the building fund, and then they went and bought a Bentley. You sold your house for a Gulfstream. Country club membership. Now, I knew people that lost their house in, in church fundraising stuff. They, they were told, we're going to do this, and they, they, they put their house on them, and then they lost their job. And then went back to church and said, uh, Pastor, we like, well, sorry, we can't help you with that. You have to learn to trust God. So, we're, so you know, it gets dicey when you get into that. So we're not talking about that kind of thing. But there's something in here about community. Community is more than just being around people that you like when you like them and when they're nice. Community is more than just going somewhere and showing up. Community is about daring to to step into the lives of people around you. It's about daring to go into your resources and into your life and and to to be and and to share your life with other people. It's about be, being willing as the spirit leads because in the world today and historically there have been communities of Christians that have gone all out like this successfully to live out their faith we're, we're, you know it's but but whether you do it this way it, it's more than what we do and more than what we know and what we're used to hello so the, the resurrection the resurrection propels us forward in a quest for boldness it it it, it, it causes us to not want to be to step back or to, to retreat, but to, to ask God to embolden us to, to, to proclaim and to live the message. A hunger to see God's healing power in the world around us and a community life and a quality of church existence as believers in Christ and with members of the body of Christ where we are willing to share our lives, the essence of our lives, with those that God has placed in our lives. And hopefully time as that goes on, we will be enabled by the grace of God to find ways through that boldness, through that desire for healing, through partnering with God and his desire to heal in the world around us and through the community that God places us into and the way that he crafts that community. We'll be able to do new things.
things and better things and reach the world in ways that we haven't been before and love the world in the spirit of Jesus who, who laid down his very life for others. Jesus who didn't come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus who being essentially equal with God emptied himself and took on our humanity and made himself as a servant. Jesus, who in the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians, who though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. And it's so much richer and so much more than just money because the thing about money, money is nice to have. And if you have any that you don't need, it's cool. You know, just see me after service. But let me tell you something. Money only goes so far. Cars and houses and lands and all of that stuff, it's wonderful and we should enjoy the things that God has blessed us with. But none of that stuff will satisfy your soul. And look in the world around you. It's, it's the rich people that you know about that are committing suicide. Because some of you think, how can he have $5 million in the bank or $20 million? Or how can he go out and, and shoot himself in the head? You get, you, you, duh. Because he thought. He was whoever that whoever that was, whoever that celebrity was, whoever that CEO was, whoever that that hedge fund trader was. They thought when they were a little boy, they thought I'm gonna grow up, I'm gonna be something. They had a hunger in their soul that was driving them, and they thought, you know, if I just get a, a big, big position, then they then they got they got, went to college, and they said if I could just get me if I could become a CEO. That's why I don't understand. That's, pastors is this thing where pastors want to put CEO, pastors, so and so pastor slash C. I don't want to be a CEO. I want to be a pastor. CEO, that's another. This is better than a CEO. This is being a pastor. That's a higher calling. CEO's cool, pays more money now, especially now. But it's like this is better because they're the ones. They got all kinds of said, "Boy, if I if, if I get if I, I can have a house in the Hamptons, I can have a place in Florida, I can have a yacht or two, I can have me an airplane, and I can I can have you know and the ones that are really wrong. They say I can have all these women." Or, you know, they, 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 if I had all this stuff, I'm going to be happy and everybody's going to love me and my life is going to be wonderful and it's going to be all that. And they get it. They get everything they want. They get all, they, 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 they make billions of dollars. They get the house they have. They forget which, where they live. <laughs> they got the yachts. I mean, yachts look like carnival cruise ships. I was down at Marina del Rey, and then some of those, there's this, this Russian guy has a sailboat. It's like huge. It's like, I had to go on the internet and try to find it. It was just like, it was like so stupid with helicopters on it. And I'm like, wow. It's like, and, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm sure he's happy, but it's like, they get that. And then, then they're sitting alone in their billion dollar house one evening with trays of caviar and, and, and Dom Perignon sitting around. And they had a guy come in like they did your thing with, and slice the top off with a knife. <laughs> And they're sitting, and the guy goes out and closes the door, and he picks up the gun. He says, what in the world? What does this mean? What is, what, what, what this difference is? I'm still that same little insecure little boy who doesn't know who he is, who's trying to find meaning in life, who's plagued by guilt and by shame and by sin and by bondage and by all the things that go along with not having God in his life and Christ in his life. He takes the gun and puts it to a head or puts it in his mouth and blows his brains out. And we think, wow, if I could just get that, learn from that example. That stuff won't satisfy your soul. That's not what it's all about. 
It has its place, believe me, but that's not the end of the story. God wants us to take people beyond that. There are people that are hungry for more than just a message of how to be successful in life. That's a good word, and we need to be successful. But I'll tell you what, I, I want to be successful financially, vocationally, relationally, but I probably won't be successful long in any of those arenas until I am successful spiritually. There's a guy I read about. His name is Clarence Jordan. Clarence Jordan, a white man, born, and that, I'm not saying that because I'm racially divisive. I'm saying that because it's important to the story. He was born in 1912. He died in 1969. He was born in Talbotton, Georgia. That's, that sounds pretty bleak, doesn't it? He was the seventh of ten children and. His family, they were members of the local Southern Baptist Church. And Clarence, as a young boy growing up in the early 20th century in church, he actually, in his local church, he was taught a vision of racial equality. He really took to heart the the words of that song that we sang, uh, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow. They are precious. And he took that to heart as a kid. He began to really imbibe that, that reality. And as he grew up, he became bothered by that, that those lyrics were in his, in, his, in his viewpoint as he looked around him in the world. They were in this stark contrast to the racial discrimination that he was seeing outside the church walls. Not to mention what the racial segregation that as he, as he grew of age, he began to see on Sunday mornings. It has historically been said in this country that the church in America has been the, on Sunday mornings the historically the most, the most segregated place in the country. That has been broken down to a great degree in this day, but it still remains to some degree, and historically that's the way it was, particularly at that time in the South. He was bothered by that. Now, Clarence was an interesting guy because after he graduated from high school, he earned a degree in agriculture from the University of Georgia. That sounds like a good, a good a degree, for, a degree for somebody who lives in Georgia and wants to go into agriculture, right? But then he went on to earn a Ph.D. in Greek New Testament from Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And so Clarence felt called to take this, the demanding words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount seriously. And I think that's a good idea, don't you think, that we take the words of Jesus seriously. And so as he began to come to the end of his formal schooling, you understand he had this two-pronged career. He, he had a degree in agriculture and a degree in, in, in basically New Testament Greek and so basically theology. And uh, so he, his, his goal was to form a community, a Christian community called koinonia, which is the Greek word for fellowship, farms. And so what he, what, his, what he tried to do was to unite his twin passion for agriculture and scripture. Those are two strange ones to pull together, right? With his commitment to radical, say radical, radical. Christian disciples. You don't understand between radical and marginal? Yeah. A lot of what goes on around us is marginal Christian discipleship. Do it when you feel like it, do it, you know. Radicals, when we, we kind of buy in and we, and, and we create a community where we all happen to live here and work together, so we got to deal with each other, and we kind of have to listen to each other, and we have to, like, we have to come under some sort of accountability. And so his goal was to, to uh, craft, in his own words, a demonstration plot for the kingdom of God. And um, so what happens is, bear with me, I'm, just, I'm going somewhere with this. In 1942, Clarence, his wife, and another couple, they purchased 440 acres of land in Sumter County near Americus, Georgia, which was about three hours south of Atlanta. And, uh, but almost immediately, you can imagine that trouble 
came because what happened was he had this practice within their community of the workers on the farm and the owners and everybody eating and sharing their meals together. That didn't fly so well in the South in the 1940s. And so he began to get, uh, get flack from outside parties and the local Ku Klux Klan spun into action and there were a bunch of, of, of really rough encounters between those uh, racist elements in the community around him because here's the community of Christians trying to live free of racial animus and live in unity in, a, in, a, in an area where everyone around us said, you can't do that, that ain't right. And so he had this, it was really cool because he had this, this, this question he would ask some of these guys. When I tell, and I, and you, know, you know, my wife, she's going to graduate next, next month and I, I'm told that we're going to a hooding ceremony. And I got nervous when she told me that, but then I realized it was a little different. <laughs> but, but, uh, but sometimes people would uh, question his loyalties to his southern heritage, and he would say to, to them, he said, your choice seems quite clear, and your choice is this. It is whether you will follow your granddaddy or Jesus Christ. And some of you said, wow, that's cool. That's deep. Now, because that's a guy who's several generations deep into southern racism and, and, and racial hatred and, and in the south in the 40s, but look at your life and what stuff from your family and your, in your tradition, have you carried on that maybe you need to turn from and follow Jesus Christ? And I just thought you got that one. I threw that in for free, okay? That just made everybody mad and you all want to leave. He said, Preacher, you need to wrap this up. There you go, five dollars to the lady on the left. So, Clarence thought, and I, I raised him because I, I, the story was interesting to me because he's one of those trailblazers who, who went forth in the power and the spirit of the resurrection and, and, and doing radical things for the kingdom of God, which is not the church per se. It's, it's, it's the rule and reign of Jesus when we come under that together. And now, so to, to bring this a little bit more into your realm of understanding, Koinonia Farms, that was what he started. It became ultimately Koinonia Partners, and eventually it gave birth to this other organization you may have heard of called Habitat for Humanity International. That, in, that organization grew out of what Clarence had started, and that came under the leadership of Millard Fuller, who was deeply inspired by Clarence Jordan. Now, Jordan died in 1969, not long after the first Koinonia Partners house was built. But in, among people who know of his life and legacy, it lives on. And he actually, because he was a Greek scholar, he did a southern um, dialectical version of the New Testament called the Cotton Patch Gospel, which you can buy probably in the store. And it was like the gospel translated, not paraphrased, but translated into a more Southern American dialect because he could do that. But he said something, and, and his quote helps us to bring all this together, and maybe we can find a way to, to tie this in. But this is what Clarence Jordan wrote. He said, the proof that God raised Jesus from the dead is not the empty tomb. Now, some, some of you don't, don't get, you're getting, you don't bristle. But he says, it's not the empty tomb but the full hearts of his transformed disciples. The crowning evidence that he lives is not a vacant grave, but a spirit-filled fellowship. Not a rolled-away stone, but a carried-away church. Now, now, without discounting orthodoxy, because it's, it's it, he, you know, because some of you say, well, I, you have to, I believe in the empty, I believe in all that too, but what, you got to hear what this man's saying. He's saying, that is the historical evidence on one hand, but we move, 
At some point, you move beyond that. I don't really need to preach apologetics except unless you want to use apologetics. But I, don't, I hope I'm not trying to convince a room full of Christians that Jesus rose from the grave by these things. He said, here's a real proof. The proof ultimately down the line is this. It's not the empty tomb, but it's the full hearts of transformed disciples. That's what the resurrection does. That's the aftermath of the resurrection. It fills our hearts and it transforms our lives. The crowning evidence that he lives is not a vacant grave. Yes, that is certainly unevidence, but the crowning evidence is a spirit-filled fellowship. Not a rolled-away stone, but, and I love this, this term, a carried-away church. Because, you know, folks told you when you got saved, don't you don't get carried away. Yeah, I know you, you go into the church, but don't get carried away. Don't go overboard. That was all right when you were getting drunk and you were drunk as a skunk and coming in at four and five in the morning and, and, and wrecked five cars on the way home. And, oh, he just, he's just having fun. But then when you get saved, don't get carried away. You going overboard. Some, and I, I know, I don't, I know there are people, you know, I know that there are Christians that can be like annoying, right? <laughs> I'm just being honest. I did. You know. But I, but God bless them because some folks were so out, were so overboard the other way. When they came to Christ, they just went whole hog the other direction. But where is the church as a sense in which we're supposed to be carried away by the Spirit of God? Without discounting orthodoxy, I would suggest that maybe we should worry a little less about what people say they believe 2,000 years ago, what they say they believe happens, and whether or not we are living as though the resurrection happened. In other words, it's not just the ascent and affirming the historicity. And, oh, I believe in the empty tomb. I believe in the rolled away stone. I believe that on the third day, Jesus got up uh, from the grave. Uh, yeah, that's wonderful. But what difference does it make in your life today? What difference does it make in the community around you? What difference does it make in your church? What difference has it made in your family? What difference does it make in your marriage? What difference does it make in your life? And is it something that happened once and for all and it's a done deal? Yes, on one hand. But on the other hand, does resurrection still happen? Does resurrection still take place? Does God still speak to things that are dead and call them back to life? Does God still resurrect dead entities and dead people and dead systems and dead relationships? How are we partnering? I'll stay with me a few more minutes and I'm going to let you go, but i got to get through this. How, how are we cooperating with God? Today and transform, transforming in the world around us, despair into hope, apathy into to compassion, hate into love, and death into new life. I know y'all like the Transformers, right? And I didn't ask for that. <laughs> but we're called, we are the, oh, thank you, we're the ultimate transformers. No, it's not that we're just morphing from, from one kind of robot to the next or whatever they do, but we are to be transformative in our, by our presence in the world around us. Now, real quick, real quick, real quick, let's look again at these three markers. Do we dare pray for boldness to proclaim the life-giving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are we willing to live the resurrection life and proclaim its message in the midst of opposition, hostility, and competing ideologies? You live in post-Christian America. We live in America that is gone. We live in an age that is beyond what was called historically Christendom, when there was a, a, a kind of cultural consensus in Western culture, a Christianized kind of, of overarching consensus, and we're in a different age and different time and and there are theologians there are church historians there are philosophers there are thinkers that concur that we are in a different era and we don't have necessarily the 
the benefit and the blessing and the safety of such broad cultural acceptance as we once did, but that didn't, but neither did the New Testament church. They didn't get that till Constantine. But in the first few centuries, they were thrown to the lions. They were fed to the lions. They were persecuted by the Jews. They were, they were hated and killed by the Romans. They were misunderstood by the other religions in the area. They, were, they had no cultural dominance, no cultural voice. They were outcast and downcast. And they were, they were the losers in society in the eyes of so many people. And it didn't stop them. And it didn't hinder their ministry. Oh, I wish I had some folks in here that, want, that understood what I was saying. It, it didn't shut them up and slow them down. And it didn't stunt their growth and and, and incapacitate them, but the church just be, continued to grow and to grow. When they had to go underground, they went underground and they grew underground. When they were above ground, they grew. When they were throwing them, feeding them to the lions, they were growing. They kept on preaching because they believed in the message of the resurrection. Do we get, ask God to give us courage to stand by our convictions in the world where our convictions may not necessarily be mainstream? That's what the disciples did. Study the 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 the, the Moral and the intellectual climate of the New Testament. It is shocking. It is as bad or worse than anything that's going on in the world anywhere now. Cities like Corinth and the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire got worse from the time of Jesus going forward, but it wasn't that pretty in the first century. Are you willing to go forward in boldness and the power and the spirit of the resurrection? Number two, do we have a hunger to be agents of resurrection as, as manifest in God's healing power? Are we willing to intercede for God to stretch out his healing hand to do amazing things in the name of the resurrected Christ? Do we just drive around these streets and say, well, this is a shame. Look how Ingo would have gone down. But are we willing to, rather than finding fault and criticizing and, 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 and we're, we're, we're entitled to our opinions and those are a part, are we willing to look at, to drive around the streets of our community, our neighborhood, and maybe reach out and help somebody and in the midst of it say, Lord, just have that prayer on your breath. Lord, heal my city. Heal my community. Lord, heal, the, heal this apartment building. Heal this, this, this drug problem. Heal this homeless situation. Heal in this community, oh God. Are we willing to have that hunger to see God do that and then make the commitment that it takes to, to be a part of bringing that into being what about the healing of broken families the restoration of fractured communities the breaking of the power of addiction oh I'm almost done are we willing to become part of this resurrection community as we see in Acts I think I could bring it to a close with this recent biblical scholarship particularly and this is when I, I was trying to remember this one reference there was a whole book this guy wrote about five years ago uh, and it looked at the, the, this, this, this issue that I just mentioned, the phenomenal growth of the, of the early church from, from the resurrection forward, from the book of Acts over the first few centuries, when conditions in every other way were no way optimal. Everything around the church should have spelled its doom. That's why I, don't, I no longer worry because we're smaller than the church in another part of town or because of whatever obstacle or challenge we have because I realize that those things don't matter. What matters is the purpose and the power of God. And what matters is me being faithful to God and you being faithful to God and us being the church in our context. The, can it, but the, the question was, was what was the thing? This guy did this whole, wrote a whole book on it. What was it that allowed and enabled the church to grow like crazy in the midst of all of that oppression on the part of the Roman Empire, all of that rejection on the part of the Jewish authorities going forward, but, and particularly the, the, just the, 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 the hatred and the misunderstanding. People in the, in the early centuries of the church, they, the, a lot of the people in the Roman Empire, they thought Christians were crazy. They thought they were, because of the body and the blood of Jesus, they thought they're they all cannibals. How did the church flourish? 
And he said, here's the thing. This is what made the difference. There was this incredible sense of community that people were not able to experience for the most part in other places. Christians loved each other. They walked together. They shared their lives together. They shared their stuff. And people on the outside looked at that and they saw them giving their lives for Jesus being killed, but they saw them still loving their enemies and continuing to preach the gospel and, and walking in love and community. And it was, a, it, was, it was a magnetic force that drew people to be a part of that community because just like today, people have a difficult time finding true community in the world around them. Now all we do is keep our heads in our phones. Social media is wonderful. But there's no substitute for having people in your life. Because I can, I can defriend you on Facebook. But covenant relationship means I can't. Because I can't defriend my wife. If I do, it would be big trouble. But I'm in a covenant relationship with her. I can't. You know, if you don't turn on the phone or the computer, if you don't go and look at the thing, you know. But covenant relationship is like I've got to deal with you because you're my brother. I've got to deal with you because you're my sister. I deal with you whether I like you or not because I love you because Jesus loved you and Jesus loved me. And we're in a covenant community relationship. And we get community wrong because the community, well, I'll show up when I feel like it. But covenant said, because I don't go home when I feel like it. Right. Hello. Do you know if I did, I'd be like, I'd have like a lot of bruises and stuff on my head. <laughs> well, you know, man, I'm, I'm going to be there next week. But if we got that, I might just like take off for a while. I just, I'm going to go down to, I'm going to go down to San Diego for a week and just kind of hang out, you know. No, you, you, you show up because you're in a relationship. That was what, that was the, the, the magnetism that, 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 that brought about the, the, the growth of the early church explosive growth, the sense of community, their commitment to each other, their willingness to share. The disciples believed in the resurrection, and that belief was so severe that it drove them to put everything on the line. Now, I've got to wrap this up. I've got to bring this to a close. But let's, 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 and I I shared this quote last week by N.T. Wright, and he wrote this. He said, people who believe in the resurrection. I I know you, how many of y'all believe in the resurrection? Do we believe in it enough to allow it to make a difference in our lives. And more importantly, and that subjective personal thing is real because, you know, I, I believe in it because Jesus rode with me. Are you willing to take that resurrection life to somebody else who's, in, who's entombed in sin, who's entombed in addiction, and who's entombed in hatred and bitterness and, 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 and all kinds of junk? Are you willing to, to step up? Because he says people who believe in the resurrection and God making a whole new world, and I know and you, you believe that, right, God? You're going to make all things new, right? He said, well, guess what? They are unstoppably motivated to work for that new world in the present. One of the big challenges philosophically and theologically in American thought in this last century or so is an eschatological one. I'm going to say this without taking any hard positions, but understand me. Many of you have adopted the view, and and as our church denominational view. We believe in the pre-tribulational rapture. And you think that the church always believed that, just like you do, that you're going to be driving your car down the freeway and God's going to snatch you up in your car, going to run and kill a whole bunch of people. But that's just the way it is. But the thing about it is, you ain't got to fix them because, you know, we're just going to keep on going and, you know, hey, they're going to start war over the Middle East and it's going to bam, and then boom, we out of here. Yay! Forget y'all. That view guy named Darby in England came up with, that, with, with, a, with dis, this dispensationalist theological framework. The Schofield Reference Bible was a big uh, 
was a big purveyor of that, of that thought in the latter part of the 19th century. That wasn't the predominant eschatological view in the church for the first 1900 years or so. There are there a few different views. What that view has done is for many of us, there's an escapist thing. We don't have, we're not really responsible for too much around here. It's just about getting a few folks saved and we go on, get right church and let's go home. And I believe in the second coming of Christ. I'm looking forward to I say Maranatha. Lord, even so come Lord Jesus. But the future is not just about you being snatched out of here and going to heaven because he says, behold, he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. We're going to rule and reign with him forever. There's more to it. I don't understand it all. But we can't just throw away the creation. We can't just throw away everything with an escapist view that we're just going to, it doesn't matter. While we're here and in this world, since we believe in the world to come, in this world and in this environment, in the spirit of the resurrection, because the reason why Jesus was raised again physically was to, was to demonstrate and to authenticate God's, God's engagement with the physical world and the physical reality. God doesn't say that matter is evil and spirit is good. God said, I made it all, and so it's all good. I made human flesh, and so human flesh is good. You're not going to be a disembodied spirit floating around up in heaven. You are going to have a new body, and it will have a physical dimension to it as well as a spiritual dimension. Let's, while we're here, let's live as though we really do believe in the world to come. But let's try to get as many people on board with that and let's try to make as let's try to bring that kingdom because that's why Jesus said when you pray, say, Lord, let your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's be a part of this the problem and not uh, the solution rather and not a part of the problem. Let us be let us let us thoroughly embrace the reality of the resurrection in this life and let's let's see that let's allow that resurrection life to to crop up all around us and let's engage in that level of community that will allow us to sow love and resources into the lives of one another and to make change in the com- community in the world around us. Does that make sense? Let's stand. I'm going to stop there.